Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let us go to our consultant virologist, Dr. Chris Smith of Cambridge University for a COVID-19 update. Questions are welcome. Kia ora, Chris. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm very well. And you? Yeah, I am. And, you know, the sun is shining and it's easy to forget as you sit in this nice sunny garden that I'm lucky to have. And I'm so grateful I do what is happening to the world. And um, and I'm so grateful for, the, as I say, the greenery, the ability to step outside, because I think for people who are stuck in one bedroom flats at the moment or they live in the middle of a city and they can't really go out and they can't hear the bird song, uh, it must be absolutely intolerable. I know, we should be very grateful, those of us with gardens and birds. Mm. Now, you have, controversially, stated your position on face masks for the general public. If you're sick, wear one. If you're well, there's really no protection and possibly an environment wet and warm in which coronavirus might thrive. However, in Germany and New York and parts of France, other countries, they are now compulsory, and in New Zealand... We have a leading epidemiologist who says we need to consider face marks generally. What say you? OK, well, I mean, just to run over w- what ground we've considered on this in the past. For people who work in a hospital and they are in very close contact with people who are highly infectious for this coronavirus, then wearing a proper face mask that's tight fitting, forms a proper seal around the nose and mouth, is built of a material that will stop particles down to the size of these viruses making their way through and won't become a good propagation medium for the virus to go through when it becomes damp with prolonged wear. And in combination with eye protection, this is very sensible for a person to adopt those sorts of protective measures because they do work. And I wouldn't dispute that for one moment. What people are less clear on, and in the mo- at the moment the World Health Organization and also in the UK, other countries as well, there isn't a generalised policy of mask wearing among the general public. One concern is that if the general public do start to consume mask-type products, this will put a strain on a number of things. One is the availability of masks for the healthcare workers who really need them, and two, distribution networks. Because if you make something compulsory, you've got to enforce it. And if you enforce it, how do you do that? Well, you've got to have people who are out helping to make sure that people can comply. So if you're an older person who can't, for reasons of, say, rheumatic joints, knock up a homemade face mask, or you can't go out to the shops and buy one, but you do want to go out on your walk and you're being told you have to wear one, uh, then you have to have a way of making sure those people are not disadvantaged. So this could be a resource robber, as it were. So it's very important when considering the pros and cons of this kind of thing to weigh these sorts of factors up. And when people have done those sorts of analyses in the UK and elsewhere, they've come to the conclusion that at the moment the balance of evidence does not support when you're out and about in public wearing a mask. And their argument goes as follows, that in the household situation that's where most of the transmissions are occurring, at least in settings like the UK, 
like New Zealand, like Australia, where people live and work the way that they do. And 80% to 90% of, of transmissions we think are happening in that setting, the minority when people are out and about. And this is because the guidance that's been issued for when you're out and about is to socially distance. You should be a certain distance away from people and certainly you shouldn't be going out if you're symptomatic. And this protects both people because it means if you're symptomatic, you are not, sh you are not going out and about shedding virus over people. If you are out and about and someone else is, is out and about and they are symptomatic and you're away from them, you're minimising the chance of catching it anyway. And even if they're asymptomatic, because you're distanced from them, you're minimising the chance of catching it anyway. But were you symptomatic and out and about, maybe a face mask would be beneficial. And this is where some of the controversy is coming from, because if you're in a position where you can't do anything about your proximity to other people, for instance, a packed bus, a packed train, the London Underground, which moves three million people a day under normal circumstances, packed in like sardines. If you're standing next to someone who's highly symptomatic and they are wearing a face mask, that could arrest the spray of droplets that are coming out of that person and into the air, and so you're less likely to breathe them in. So that is really the, the rationale for the current guidance. But this week we sought out somebody who has actually looked at this in a lot more detail. Because rather than just taking on board what government chief scientific officers and the WHO say, uh, what Julie Brainard, who's a researcher at the University of East Anglia, has done is she's gone into all of the research papers that she could find that have looked at the role of masks in disease transmission. Now, obviously, she couldn't look at coronavirus transmission because there aren't any publications on this novel virus yet. It's too new. But what they have done is to look at the effect on flu transmission and similar respiratory viruses. And the conclusion that they have reached is that there is a small protective effect. The strongest protection comes when both healthy and sick people wear these masks, but it's not a simple case of black and white. So what I thought I'd do is play you the interview that my colleague Adam Murphy, who works for The Naked Scientist, conducted with Julie just the other day. The methods we used is something called a systematic review. And you look at all the primary research studies that have been done by other investigators looking at real people wearing face masks and being exposed to an environment where something like influenza is circulating. And you compare the people who wore face masks and the people who didn't, who got more flu. And then what kind of things did you find at the end of this review? What we found is the evidence is a little complicated. So one thing that had happened is in the previous literature summaries, the science tended to look only at what are called randomized controlled trials. And that's where people are given the masks and often it's known who they're being exposed to. And in those situations, you've got a group of people who've been asked to please wear a mask and you've got another group of people who've been asked, please don't wear a mask. And the first thing you find out is that people didn't follow instructions. <laughs> so you have people who were supposed to wear masks, who maybe only wore them half the time or less, and people who weren't supposed to wear masks who wore them some of the time. So then when you compare the results at the end, we might find a small protective effect, but you're thinking that's probably underestimating the true protective effect. So that was a problem with those trials, which should be the very best quality evidence. They were often very small trials, so you couldn't sort of adjust for other factors, other hygiene awareness. The other type of 
observational study that can be done. You look at people who've had, say, influenza, and you compare them to people who didn't, and you compare their habits to see which hygiene habits might be the most protective. And the problem with that is you know you've never captured all the variables. And in that second type of study, which is called a case control, you typically find much stronger evidence in favor of face masks, but you don't really know, is it the face mask or is it something I haven't observed? So I think what we found was the evidence is complicated. That said, on balance, we all concluded that there is some protective effect going on most of the time in the groups that wear the face masks, but it's a small protective effect. So what does that mean as a recommendation? Does that mean with coronavirus, we all should wear face masks? No, but see, that's complicated too, because we all know that there's, we don't want the public to be competing with healthcare professionals. You have to think, how can a face mask protect you? It's going to protect you because somebody's put, well, to be crude about it, they've put a little bit of spit into your environment, probably directly onto your face because they've been talking to you or they've coughed near you. And the people who are going to most benefit from having the face masks are the healthcare professionals. So if us in the public start wearing these masks, are we going to actually deprive them of that protective equipment? The other thing is there's a lot of the time we don't really know what kind of masks people were wearing. So in those observational studies, people were asked, did you wear a mask? But they weren't usually asked what kind of mask. So we don't know enough about how protective cloth masks might be, for instance. In the deliberate experiments, people were always given surgical masks, and we know a lot about their properties and why they could keep viruses out. So in terms of should we all wear masks? Well, they're not very practical because they're uncomfortable. They can cause skin reactions. You have to take them off to eat and clean your teeth, and they, they usually impede breathing to some extent. So should we all wear masks? I think the, the conclusion we came up with is that if people want to wear masks, they've got good evidence that they're giving themselves some protection. But no mask is as good as getting two meters away from someone. So the social distancing where we just don't have that opportunity to pass material, little saliva material between us, is much better than wearing a mask. And it's much more practical um, a lot of the time. So where would we wear a mask? Where would we suggest it? It would be um, in crowded environments where you can't avoid being close to someone. So so the typical example would be on the tube, other types of crowded public transport and possibly crowded shops. So where I live right now, there's there's no such thing as crowded public transport or crowded shops. That was Julie Brainard from the University of East Anglia. So you can see that it's not straightforward, it's more complicated, and it's down to the interpretation of your situation. So I think the bottom line is if you're in a crowded environment and there are people around who could infect you and you can't observe social distancing, the evidence perhaps suggests that you would be benefited by everyone adopting a mask strategy. But if you're out in the countryside for for a stroll, probably not. Context is is pretty much everything, such as the talismanic nature of face masks that I suggest we'll never get to the bottom of this debate. I am interested that the British Medical Journal said that simple cloth face masks help and that in the face of a pandemic, the search for perfect evidence may be the enemy of good policy. Yeah, I think I'll probably go along with that because sometimes it's you can end up being so focused on the detail that you throw the baby out with the bathwater, to mix metaphors there. But uh, certainly the evidence that, that she has reviewed is comprehensive and wide scale and they're saying there is a small protective effect and it's, it's context-specific. So I think you know, the take-home message is if you're knocking around at home 
or you're wandering around in your garden or you can observe social distancing, it's probably not going to buy you much. But if you are not able to enforce that rigidly, it might buy everyone a benefit if everyone does it. Because remember, when you're wearing the mask, the the wearer is not protected. You are protecting other people by being a wearer. Yep. Um, Thank you for that. Over 100 vaccines in development around the world. Oxford University has begun human trials um, and healthy volunteers have been called for by Imperial College as well, I think. Will all these vaccine trials be focusing on a different part of this coronavirus? There are multiple irons in the fire for this, Kim, and I think that's a really good idea because you never know when you go into this sort of business who's going to become a winner and who isn't. I sat down with uh, one of the very senior people at AstraZeneca a little while ago and he said to me in no uncertain terms, about 90% of the drugs that we embark upon trying to turn into um, a product will fail along the trials process. So we've got a 10% success rate. And that's why the world of pharmaceuticals is extremely high risk and very expensive, because you've got to take enormous risks and you've got to spread your bets in order to to capitalise on the wins that you do bring home. So the fact that there are a large portfolio of potential vaccines all being developed in parallel is is really good because they're exploring a number of different strategies, a number of different approaches, vaccines that work in a number of different ways, some of them extremely novel, some of them untried and completely untested, both not just for this coronavirus or coronaviruses at all, but also the approach they're taking to make an, an immune response. And others are more adept at having some kind of track record and therefore probably a better bet. But we're going to find out one way or the other. And in the case of the Oxford trial, they're predicting that we'll know as soon as the uh, September, October sort of months come along. So we're talking about doing 10 years work in 10 months. And are they they focusing on a a tiny part of the virus and, and seeing whether they can replicate that unique bit? Right. Well, just to mention what they're doing at Oxford, this is the Jenner Institute and Sarah Gilbert is the principal investigator who's leading this project. Their approach is what they call a subunit vector mediated vaccine. What they've done is to take a chimpanzee adenovirus. These are cold causing viruses, the adenovirus family. And the reason they've chosen a chimpanzee virus is this is not naturally an infection in humans. So it won't circulate in humans and therefore no one naturally has antibodies against it. So when you put this virus in, you're not going to have antibodies because the person's already met this virus to thwart your immunisation. They've disabled the virus by deleting from it one of its key genes. This is called the E1 gene. And if you remove this, the virus itself is completely infectious. You can put it into a cell, but once it gets into the cell... It's like you've taken one of the main cogs out of the mechanism. It can't actually complete its replication cycle. So it will turn on some genes and having got into the cell perfectly well, express a few things, but it can't make new baby viruses. So it can't do any more damage. It can't spread beyond the cell that it first infected. And that's called being replication defective. So a bright person listening to this is going to say, well, how on earth do you make it in the first place then? And the way they do this is that they've got a special cell culture system called a complementing cell line, and they've put into the cells that grow in a dish this E1 gene. So the cells make the E1 gene product, 
And when you put this new chimpadenovirus in there, it doesn't know that it can't make this stuff itself because it's just in a cell that's awash with the stuff. So the virus grows beautifully in these special cells, but then as soon as you take it out of those cells and put it into a person, it's then devoid of this E1 gene and it can't grow. And they've used this, what's called a vector, so that's the backbone of the vaccine, and added to it a gene which codes for the spike protein of the new coronavirus. The spike protein is the bit that sticks out from the surface of the virus, and on the end of that is the molecular grappling hook that it uses to grab hold of our cells and infect. And the rationale behind doing this is, when you put this immunisation vector into a person, it infects cells. The cells then make the protein that the coronavirus would make if it were to have infected a cell. And this is presented to the immune system in the context as though they were really infected with coronavirus because all the danger signals in the cell go off. Hey, I'm being infected with a virus. Come and pay attention to me and do something about it. The immune system comes in, says, ah, yes, I'm going to make a response to this particular structure, which is this spike protein. And you make not just antibodies, but you should also make what's called a cell-mediated response. You also make a class of white blood cells, T-lymphocytes, called CD8 cells, that recognise specifically cells that have got that marker on them, this spike protein, and that means that those cells can go and kill virally infected cells. So not only do you get a defence from antibody, which will stop the virus getting in in the first place, if any did make it through your defences, you'd also have the ability to recognise cells that had become infected and were trying to turn into virus factories, and you could knock them off as well. And there is some track record... The efficacy of any vaccine, though, Chris, will depend on whether you can get COVID-19 more than once. And an increasing number of COVID-19 patients have tested positive after a full recovery in South Korea, it seems, which raises a number of interesting questions. I'm sceptical of those results, as are other virologists. And the reason I'm sceptical is because the tests that we're doing to detect the virus detect the nucleic acid, the genetic information of the virus. And they're only as good as your ability to collect a good sample from a patient. And once a person begins to recover from the virus, the amount of virus left behind, the residuum of the infection, is vanishingly small. And it's possible, therefore, to have a good day and swab the right bit and the blob of mucus or snot that you gather from the back of their nose and throat just happens to have some virus in it. And that test is positive. You come back the next day, your swab is not quite so thorough and you miss it. And this time you've gone below the limit of detection of the test. So you call it negative. Then you do it again, and this time, yeah, you were lucky, and you got a positive again. And this would explain why people get this on-off effect of the test being positive, negative, positive again. I don't think, and many people are very, very sceptical, that people are being reinfected. We think it's merely poor performance of the test, or poor sampling of the patients. So the tests are returning, for want of a better phrase, a false negative. And these people probably were just slowly removing virus from their body. They never were really negative between the two positives. And given long enough, they would then begin to test negative and they would then 
have cleared the virus. And in the patients that are being studied, and also they've got uh, monkeys that they're infecting in China to test this, and the monkeys behave very, very similarly to humans when they catch it. And you can plot the trajectory. You can see the virus goes in, causes the infection, causes a similar syndrome to humans, and then the immune system responds. The virus is slowly eliminated from the body, and it's replaced by an antibody defensive response which is there and hangs around for a few months at least and so at the moment we we know we make a good immune response we think it's going to persist but you're right to call out the fact that the the effectiveness of a vaccine presupposes we're going to get an effective immune response and that is exactly what they're going to be testing in these trials because that what they'll be looking at is there'll be a control group and those people will get a meningitis vaccine and there'll be the intervention group, they will get the coronavirus vaccine, but no one knows what's, ha- who, what's been given to whom. So the doctors don't know, the patients don't know. They'll be followed up and they're actually relying on the fact that there is transmission going on in the community because they'll be looking to see an excess of infections in the control group and protection in the intervention group. And the people who have clearly been protected we know that they must have antibodies and we can test those to see if those antibodies remain. The people who've caught it um, clearly were not protected because they didn't get the coronavirus vaccine and that proves there was some effectiveness. Another question, and it seems this is the rationale the government is using to open early childhood centres and schools next week under Level 3. It seems that infected children and young people tend not to pass the virus on to adults. We've seen very few cases of children with COVID-19. Why would children and young people not pass the virus on? Well, it might be that we're very uh, cautious about hanging around with snotty kids. I know that when when I I see my kids beginning to sneeze, I distance myself. <laughs> COVID or no COVID, I'm sure other people do the same. We tend to encourage kids to wipe their noses. We tend to practice better hygiene when we interact with children. But but usually, by and large, children are virus factories. They normally get really infectious. They catch everything going and then they spread it around all over the place. So I'd be quite surprised, actually, if we find that children are not vectoring this around i think this requires more analysis we need to make sure uh, that that um the conclusion that's being drawn that maybe children don't spread this is is robust i think that will only come when we've got clear scrutiny of who's catching it i don't think many children were tested in the early phases because they were and the testing that's being done or hitherto um has been symptom led if people have symptoms they're getting tested if they haven't they're not and so if children are not symptomatic doesn't mean they're not infected. It might just be they're not being tested. And if they're not being tested, it's not being concluded that they're positive. So it may be that we haven't actually picked up all the epidemiology yet. So I reserve judgment on this one. I think we'll, we'll get we'll get more clarity as, as more data emerges around who is infectious and whether people are all equivalently infectious or not. Yeah, lots of questions about this virus, such as the urgency that it's being inquired into. A lot of things are being suggested without, you know, the usual kind of peer review, um, albeit from professionals. And one of the interesting things has been the suggestion that the virus is causing blood clots. The attack mm. is not only launched on the lungs, but also the kidneys and the heart, and the intestines, the liver, the brain. And some have suggested giving preventive blood thinners to all. Ebola caused the bleeding, And it seems that COVID-19 might be the opposite. What's your reading 
of the link between this coronavirus and blood clots. Yes, some of the people who have been in the intensive care have had patches of their lungs where there's been poor blood flow because they've actually found a blockage or obstruction of some of the pulmonary vessels. Whenever you get a severe inflammatory situation going on, it's possible that you get, because of the deranged biochemistry, because of sluggish blood flow and a range of other factors, including low oxygen, you can end up shifting the balance of blood in favour of clotting away from anticoagulation because blood normally sits in a sort of a balance between factors that are trying to keep the blood thin and factors that are trying to clot the blood. And anything that upsets that equilibrium can push you in one direction or the other, usually in the context of infection, immobility, inflammation. These factors can all cause blood to shift towards a a pro-coagulant state. And I suspect that that is what is going on here. Um, What you sometimes also see is, is with inflammatory conditions, you can get inappropriate formation of immune complexes in the bloodstream, which can sometimes also help to initiate the clotting cascade in a range of places. So that may also be what's behind that. And so uh, if that turns out to be a common observation, and certainly with very immobile people, people who um, you know don't move around, because it, normally what happens is that blood in your dependent tissues, like legs and ankles and things, gets moved back up towards the heart by you moving. And when you move and you clench your muscles, because veins have valves in them, when you squeeze a muscle, you squeeze the vein. And the valves mean that the blood can only go one way. So if you have a push on the vein from behind the blood is forced up the vein back towards the heart. If a person's not moving around, either because they're not feeling well or because they're intensive in the intensive care and they're paralysed, then the blood will undergo some degree of stasis and there's a risk of getting blood clotting under those conditions as well. And this is a well-known consequence um, of, of immobility in hospital and otherwise. So people are on their guard against that anyway. All right. There also are reported to be differences between COVID pneumonia and ordinary pneumonia. Uh, COVID pneumonia, um, you get dangerously low oxygen levels and severe pneumonia, but minimal distress and and silent hypoxia, which leads to acute respiratory failure and sudden death. Do you agree that there might be a very different sort of pneumonia attached to COVID-19? Well, pneumonia means that you have an infection in the lungs. And there are lots of reasons to get pneumonia. You get bacterial pneumonia. You can get a fungal infection if you have an impaired immune system. And viruses will also cause a pneumonia. And the radiology, the appearance on an X-ray, is often very different between those things, which is partly how we diagnose and discriminate, and which bits of the lungs get affected and how they're affected also differ between those different presentations. Viral infections tend to produce quite diffuse changes in the lungs that are patchy and across a range of different places. And this means actually they can take down a broad swathe of the lung and you can compromise lung function in those areas if you get inflammation and airway collapse. Whereas if you've got, say, a patch of the lung, one lobe, which gets a bacterial infection, because the bacteria don't spread around so easily, you'll just compromise that part of the lung. But because there's an enormous safety factor in the lung, you've got enough uh, to compensate by breathing a bit harder and a bit more often. So you can make up for the, the shortcomings. The thing you say about people getting a silent hypoxia, so people don't realise that their blood oxygen may be dropping, 
This may be because what's happening is that the effect is kicking in, and I'm speculating wildly here, I don't know the answer, but it could be because the effect is kicking in slowly over a period of time. We're very good at compensating, and we could therefore not realise that actually we are upping our respiratory rate, we're changing our activity level to compensate for the fact, and your tissues become much better at liberating oxygen from the blood if they start to run out of oxygen, which is why you can climb up a mountain, you can go to the top of Everest with acclimatisation, admittedly, and you can cope with this dramatic reduction in the partial pressure of oxygen, pushing oxygen from the air in your lungs into your blood. So the human body will go through enormous amounts of compensation to make up for the fact that bits of your lung are not actually pushing oxygen very efficiently into the blood anymore. And it might be that that's, that's what's going on, that people don't notice that, like that. In fact, I got a, a message from a friend uh, who used to lecture me at university and became a very good friend. We've been in touch for 25 years. And he said, I'm currently in hospital with coronavirus and he actually went in for some surgery in the first part of March and thinks he caught it then because he said he'd, he'd been having a, a colleague to, or a family member to come over and, and um, attend to a, the dressing for the spinal surgery he'd had just to change the dressing each day because it's around the back and he couldn't see it and this person said to him you're very breathless and he said oh I just thought it was because I was out of shape because I've been laid up with my back and they said, I think I'd better call an ambulance. And he's been admitted and he's hoping to get home next week. So he would fit your category of someone who had these symptoms creeping up and he's compensated by doing less and probably breathing a bit harder. So many questions and so many issues. Here's an interesting um, email from Steve who says, I have a virologist studying people who should get COVID but don't. He says he's got friends in Colorado. They picked up COVID, most likely in California, only the wife, early 50s, and the daughter, 20s, got COVID for more than one month. But the father, age 57, travelled with them, lived in their house, has not had one symptom the past five weeks. Yep. That would be interesting to study that individual, would it not? Indeed. And I'm pleased to say, and that's a very perceptive question, that that's exactly what scientists are doing. And in fact, scientists who are colleagues of mine in Perth, Western Australia, have devoted their entire research endeavour at the Australian National Phenome Centre. This is Professor Jeremy Nicholson and his team to looking at this very question because what the Phenome Centre does, a phenome is the combination or the cocktail of chemicals that you can measure in an individual which are the product or the interaction between the genetic recipe book that tells their body how to run and the environment they live in. And so rather than read someone's genome, which is painstaking and takes time and doesn't actually tell you whether or not someone's really at risk of something, because, for instance, if you had a gene that meant you were going to die of alcoholic cirrhosis, but you never touched a drop of alcohol because it wasn't available to you, then a gene screen would conclude that you had a high risk of alcoholic cirrhosis. But a phenome screen would tell you had never went near alcohol, so actually the risk of that gene having any effect is zero. So the phenome is very powerful. So what they're doing is measuring all these different chemicals in an individual, and they can look for fingerprint patterns in the levels and the relative levels of all of these different chemicals in any kind of body fluid, whether it's blood or spit or even your breath. And these fingerprint patterns can be predictive of all of the ways in which your body is working and therefore can tell you not just what you might be suffering from today, 
but they can tell you what you might die of in 30 years' time because written into that relative yeah. fingerprint pattern is a prediction of how you are interacting with your environment and how your genome is handling the environment that you put yourself in. And this means it's very powerful as an opportunity to study people who are exactly like the one you described, people who are in a family, so they're genetically very close, very similar, but there are members who do and members who don't succumb. And there may well be some biochemical fingerprints that we could spot. And the real power of this is it's very cheap and very quick to do a phenome screen because once you know what you're looking for, you can do it for just cents and you can do it in seconds. And they're, they're going for it at the moment. That's so interesting, isn't it? I'm going to save a, a lot of questions for next week. They will still be live questions and we're nearly out of time. But I invite you finally to address the deranged musings of the President of the United States and tell me very quickly... <laughs> How long you got? <laughs> ..your opinion about the prospect of injecting disinfectants. Well, you know what? OK, Donald Trump is right, OK? If you inject Dettol or Domestos or Mr Muscle or Harpic or any of these other high street brands into yourself, you will not die of coronavirus. He's absolutely right. Because you'll be dead already. Uh, you'll have died of Dettol poisoning or something. Um, I, I don't know what was going through his head. I think he I kind of saw someone's PowerPoint presentation in the background, which was explaining some of the public health rationale for how we control coronavirus and why certain viral infections are more common in summer or not, or more common in winter rather, and they spread less well in summer. And I think he kind of got it muddled up into his head and conflated this into, well, this must be a new magical treatment. Because each of the bits individually were based on sound science. But together, it just amounted to a huge cocktail of rubbish. Because heat, yes, that does destroy viruses. If I, if I cook a virus, I'll kill it. But I'm not going to cook a patient into coronavirus submission. Ultraviolet light is in sunlight. And it's true that when the summer comes, there is a bit more of the shorter wavelength types of ultraviolet, like UVB, which might be able to deactivate viruses. So UV might account for why viruses circulate less well in summer. Fact. But you wouldn't put that into the body. And then his other thing about disinfectants and things, well, well, yes, we clean surfaces with those. They're very effective, but I certainly wouldn't drink it. It seems from some reports that there is one of those medical cure cults that promotes the use of a certain type of disinfectant to cure everything from, you know, athlete's foot to earache and coronavirus. And they were in touch with the president and the suggestion is that he found that quite interesting and so it came out of his mouth oh, but goodness. anyway don't do it no do definitely not do don't it at do home. it very nice to talk to you chris thank you thanks kim very uh, much that indeed. was dr chris smith pleasure talk to you next week i hope